0: right, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and open them uh, with me to Psalm 118, Psalm 118 this morning. And before we begin looking at that, I'd like to have a word of prayer as we come together before the Lord in His Word. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, one more time, we come and pray again this morning. We we ask that you would be merciful to us because of our tendency to sin, of our own human weakness, the sinful flesh that still resides within us, and we... We plead the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins, because it's only by his sacrifice that we can be forgiven, only by his shed blood that we're able to come into your presence today, and only because of the work of Jesus Christ for us that we can rightly worship you and know you. I pray today that you would be gracious to us forgive us our sin this week as we have not been mindful of you as we should and have often sought to resolve our problems and our issues on our own without coming to you and depending on you and faith. I pray that you would forgive us and strengthen us today. Teach us from your word that we might know how we ought to live, and then we might be empowered to go and do that which you would have us do this week in light of your truth. And I pray that you would glorify yourself in this time as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a question for you to ponder. Maybe get a little response if someone wants to share. Do you have a favorite psalm? Anybody have a favorite psalm? 150 to choose from. Anybody want to share it? you have a favorite psalm, you'd like to just say what your favorite one is. Matthew. Psalm 100. psalm 100. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. I won't quote the whole thing, but that's good. Yeah, Psalm 100. Anybody else? I won't necessarily be able to quote them all, so don't just, you know. 103. Psalm 103. Oh, okay. That was unexpected. That's okay. That's good. Ooh, Psalm 18. Psalm 136, oh, Lisa, 51. Psalm 51, a lot of it, we could, we could, we could all, maybe we all, maybe we all have a favorite psalm, what's that, Psalm 91, good, this, incredible variety of the psalms, Jim, Psalm 1, psalm one. absolutely, tremendous. We have this great variety of the Psalms, and we can can have a favorite Psalm, and many people have favorite Psalms. Of course, there are some that are, are, are very commonly recognized, Psalm 23, of course, beloved by many people. It's read often at hospitals and funerals and other places where we want to seek comfort from the Lord. Psalm 139 is a favorite of many because of the reminder of God's sovereignty over all and His wisdom. For some, Psalms 32 and 51, recently mentioned Psalm 51, they're reminders of our brokenness over our sin, and yet even in our sinfulness of the the grace of God to forgive, beautiful uh, reminders of that, which we need. There are a lot of uh, favorite Psalms, and and again, even as we've already demonstrated, you have a variety of them uh, that you like. Well, it's interesting because if you read the New Testament, it is actually not very difficult to figure out what the favorite psalm was of the New Testament writers. They, of course, no surprise since I've already asked you to turn to Psalm 118, but but their favorite psalm was here, Psalm 118. Favorite psalm of the New Testament writers. How do I know that? Well, because this psalm is quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. And almost every one of the New Testament writers quotes from this psalm at least once. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of the gospel writers uh, refer to, quote, this psalm. Peter uh, quotes from this psalm more than once. Paul, numerous times, quotes from this psalm. And the writer of the book of Hebrews, who we don't even know who he was, and yet he quotes from this psalm. Only two New Testament writers, James and Jude, who do not quote from this psalm in their brief books, so out of the entire New Testament, vast majority of the writers, and it is even a favorite of Jesus. Jesus referred to this psalm on multiple occasions. It's a a favorite. It's used all throughout the New Testament. Now, it's it's perfectly fine for you to have a different favorite psalm than the New Testament writers. I'm not pointing that out to make you feel guilty because you didn't pick the right one. Okay, or anything like that. But clearly, they they love this psalm. But one of the things about that that actually may have a tendency of making this psalm a little bit more difficult for us to interpret. Because when we read Psalm 118, we have a tendency to want to run to the New Testament. And we have a tendency to pick up on the places where the New Testament writers come back to this psalm over and over again. And how they use it and how they speak of it may have a tendency to color how we read the psalm. Now, last week when we studied Psalm 117, we didn't run to the New Testament. Although I did mention we could have done so, book of Romans... Uh, specifically quotes Psalm 117. And then I think the book of Revelation really provides a great capstone uh, to it. We didn't do that, and we're not going to do that here this morning. But that doesn't mean that we have to ignore the prevalence of this song in the New Testament. That's important. But we need to first seek to understand it here in the context of the Old Testament before we can rightly see how and why it's used in the New Testament. I don't necessarily plan to do that second part today, but when we rightly understand it in its context, then we go to the New Testament and we'll see. you can see why the New Testament writers referred back to this psalm as often as they did and, and, and with as much um, emphasis. Now, you're probably already familiar with some of the verses of this psalm, especially verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Anybody heard that verse before? Okay, very familiar. Verse 23, of course. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. We love to sing the chorus based on verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We're going to sing that chorus in a little bit. Now, you probably don't recognize it here, but verses 25 and 26 are also well-known. They were shouted by the crowds when Jesus entered the city on what we call Palm Sunday. Verse 25 says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. Literally, that is, Hosanna! Verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what the crowds were shouting as Jesus was riding into the city of Jerusalem. And of course, back in verse 6, we read, now The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, verse 6, quotes that immediately after the promise that the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. And we love to read and meditate on that truth. And so number of the verses of this psalm we are already familiar with. And again, as I said, this is clearly on the minds of the New Testament writers as they were thinking about and meditating on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so we can say, in one sense, this psalm very definitely points ahead to Jesus, the Messiah. But I don't want to call it prophetic in a technical sense. Because the psalm is not a... Strictly speaking, a prophecy of the Messiah coming. What it is, the Psalm 118, in the Old Testament context, is it is a song of procession. So it is the song sung by a procession of worshipers led by the King of Israel. And the King is leading a procession of worshipers, a whole crowd of people, and they are going to Jerusalem. And they are going there for a specific purpose. They're going to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, uh, and, and specifically for an act of divine deliverance. And that's really what Psalm 118 is all about. By the way, just... We don't, I, I don't have time to go through and draw all these connections for you, but if you read Psalm 118 and you look back in Psalms 115 and 116 especially, you'll see that the writer of Psalm 118 is either borrowing from those or maybe it's the same writer and he wrote them all to be kind of an integrated set. And we said that the Jewish people sing these psalms as a part of the Passover, traditionally, the Egyptian Hallel, and this is the last one of that set. So when Jesus and his disciples finished with the Last Supper, and they sang a hymn and then went out to the Mount of Olives where he went out to pray, this was the last song that they sang, this song. But this psalm really ties together the preceding ones because he uses all sorts of terminology and language, and it's just borrowed, just straight from them. And, and, and you, you could look at that and then lay them out next to each other and look at them and draw all those connections. Uh, it's not very difficult to see, uh, even in the English translation, it's very, very clear And you can see a number of the connections there that are used. Now, um, what's interesting here and what I want you to do is I want you to try to picture with me the situation. I want you to envision what's happening. And so as we look at this psalm together this morning, we're going to try to envision what is taking place. Because the psalm is really giving us insight into a specific event. Something is happening and we're observing it. And we're hearing the different voices of the people involved. And that's what the psalm is really. And so I want to kind of give you that effect, the the kind of immersion effect of what's taking place here, so that you'll get the the, the feel of what of what the psalm is really communicating. And so what I want you to imagine is a king, a king of Israel. We don't know which king, but a king of Israel, and he has just been through a terrible ordeal where the the people of Israel were surrounded by opposing forces that were gathered for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to destroy the king and conquer his people. And so he has just faced this this, uh, enemy force that is gathered against him and his people. Now, you might think that that a, a king, any king, any man at all or woman, facing such circumstances, being uh, surrounded by an opposing army who is there to to just destroy you, that that might lead to a little bit of distress. And you'd be right. In fact, the, the psalmist speaks about his distress here. We'll look at that in a minute. But in the moment of his distress, he cried out to Yahweh for salvation. And God heard his cry and came to his aid. And so the Lord enabled the king and his army to defeat every one of the enemies and protect the people. And so this, this successful battle has been waged. And now the king is making a journey to Jerusalem along with a crowd of people that are coming with him, they have just been delivered from their enemies. And they're coming to Jerusalem in order to offer up the sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord who rescued them. That's the the, the scenario that you need to have in your mind here. Picture yourself being in that crowd among the Israelites and the king has just won a great battle against the enemies who were there to destroy He's defended you and protected you, and now it's, it's, uh, it's a parade. But, but it's not a parade celebrating the military or the king. It's a procession to the presence of the Lord, to give thanks to the Lord. So it's kind of like a victory parade, only not like any victory parade we've ever actually seen or read about. Because, you know, I think about like, uh, you know, of course, yesterday... Uh, was the 78th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor? So we think about World War II and 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 uh, what what happened. You know, of course, you think about VE Day and then VJ Day and and the parades that went on. And of course, um, you know, we we didn't necessarily see those parades firsthand. Maybe some of you, I don't think probably any of you are old enough to have really remembered those things. Um, but uh, but but to. You know, I've seen pictures and, and recordings of those events, the parades, okay? You kind of get the sense of, of relief and the joy of celebration. The battle is over and the, 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 the victory has been won. But again, here it's different because what we have is we have this procession, but it's not a celebration of the king and the army. We're not cheering the king. We're coming to celebrate the Lord. So along the way, as this crowd of people is moving to the city of Jerusalem, we hear the king call out, and when he calls out, the crowd answers. And so there's this kind of back and forth call and response, and then the king recounts the great battle and the victory that the Lord provided. And the people respond by singing and giving praise to God. And all of this is happening as we're walking to Jerusalem. The king calls out and says what the Lord did, and the people begin to sing. And so you can imagine that as as we approach the city and we get closer to the city, and of course, we've all been on this road before, so we know what it's like to get closer to Jerusalem. We're seeing the landmarks, and we're getting closer. And as we get closer, the anticipation is building, and the, the, the... The the sound is building as our voices are raised and as the people uh, become more and more excited in their singing and their praise of the Lord. And all of this is kind of building to a a crescendo. Maybe as the, 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 the crowd kind of comes over a rise and you can see maybe the pinnacle of the temple off in the distance and you realize Jerusalem is just there. We're almost there. That's what we're seeing here. So really, this is the first 18 verses of the psalm. We might call it the procession to the gates. Right, it's a procession here to the gates. Look at verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, His mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, His mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And the first voice that we hear at the very beginning is likely the voice of the king. Of course, the king is the psalmist himself here. He calls out, and he calls out an instruction to the people. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. He is good. That is, He is beneficent. He bestows good on His people because His mercy endures forever. That word mercy there is the same word hesed. We talked about that last week. It is His loyal and steadfast love. His loving kindness. It is His covenant faithfulness. So give thanks. Give thanks to Yahweh for His goodness which is rooted in the faithful and enduring love that he has for his people. And this is clearly the central message of the psalm right there in verse 1. We start off with it, but how do I know it's the central message? Because the psalm ends with it too. Verse 29 is identical word for word with verse 1. That's the point of the psalm. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. That's the lesson of the psalm. Maybe you notice, and I mentioned already, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of connections to earlier psalms. There's some here in verses 2 through 4. We have an echo here of Psalm 115, because the psalmist says, Let Israel now say, let the house of Aaron now say, let those who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. And so what we have is we have the king kind of calling out to each one of these groups, and then the people responding, His mercy endures forever. And this is that back and forth call and response that we have. His mercy endures forever. And each group among the people is shouting this back to the king as the king is calling it back and forth. His mercy endures forever. To give thanks to the Lord. The psalmist says give thanks to the Lord. To give thanks to the Lord is to speak the truth about Him. To speak that which is true. But then we hear the king's voice again in verse 5. Verse 5, he says, I called on the Lord in distress. Again, I said, if we were surrounded by enemy host of enemy armies, it's not surprising that you'd feel a little bit of distress. When we, I mean, just think about how, you know, how it feels when someone, when anyone, even a single person, kind of, uh, uh, responds host, in a hostile way toward you, or, or is aggressive toward you in some way, or or is opposed to you, and, and you know you it, it it's like a you know, your adrenaline almost starts pumping. You get worked up, and imagine having a whole army and and, and hosts of, of of enemies all around you. Of course, he's in distress. The word distress here means literally to be in a a closed in place or to be pressed in on. It's it's the idea of being claustrophobic. Right? Being stuck in a small place. And we have expressions similar to this today. We say that someone's in a rock, between a rock and a hard place. right? They're pressed in. Or, or we say, well, he really got himself into a tight spot there. The idea is that you're pressed in. You feel compressed. You don't feel free to move. You're, you don't have anywhere to go. And that's the way he says he felt. But look how perfectly the Lord responded to him. Right? He says, he answered me and set me in a broad place. He was in a, in a as if he were in a, in a tunnel, claustrophobic, pressed in. And he comes out of that tunnel, out into a wide open field. The sun is shining, there's fresh air, and there's tons of space. And he says, that's what the Lord did. I cried out when I was in that pressed in, closed in place. And the Lord brought me to this wide open place and set me in this broad place. That's what it's like when God saves. Like taking you from that that place where you're you're pressed in by your sin and you're pressed in and surrounded by all of those forces that are opposed to you and and set on your destruction and the Lord removes them all and brings you to a, a wide open place where you can breathe and you can rest and have peace. And it's not just that. The Lord remains on the side of those who trust in Him. That's what the psalmist says there in verse 6, the Lord is on my side. The Lord remains on the side of those who trust in Him. And if the Lord is on your side, what possible reason could you have for being afraid? Do you think anyone could harm you without His knowing? The Lord is on your side. Believer, Christian this morning, why do you fear you have the Lord on your side? But why do we fear, though? Because, unfortunately, even as Christians, we oftentimes are afraid. Why do we fear? Why do we fear pain and suffering? Why do we fear what might happen or what could go wrong? We fear ridicule or rejection. We fear failure. I think it's interesting because, as I said, the the king here in verses 5 and 6 is really kind of confessing his trust in what the Lord did. I I cried to the Lord in distress. He saved me. But in verses 8 and 9, it's like we have the crowd kind of calling a response here. And the, the crowd kind of sums up the point. What's the point of what the king is saying here? The crowd says it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. And then it repeats that, but it says it's better to trust in the Lord than put confidence in princes or nobles, those people who are, are have power and resource. It doesn't matter how important or how powerful or successful or wealthy a person is, he's no match for the Lord. Now What what should we take? What are are the psalmist teaching us here? What are the the people saying here? They're saying this, don't trust in others. Trust in the Lord. Don't trust in others. It's better to trust in the Lord than to trust in men, even princes. Even the successful and wealthy and influential and powerful people should not be trusted in. Now, that doesn't mean... that we shouldn't, say, use physical means, right? That doesn't mean we shouldn't have insurance or retirement or try to make wise decisions or ask for help from other people or anything like that. That's not the issue here. But even when we use those means, we use the means but we don't trust in them, right? So insurance is great, but don't trust your insurance agent. Sorry, Greg. I just said anything. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, it, listen. But this is the truth, right? Insurance is great. Buy insurance. But trust in the Lord. Okay. But trust in the Lord. Buy insurance, but trust in the Lord. Take precautions, but trust in the Lord. I told I told someone this several years ago. I had a conversation with someone, um, and then we were talking about the issue of fear, living in fear. And I said, you know. It's not fearful to take precautions, right? As a father, if I go through the house and I check the windows to make sure they're locked at night, check the doors to make sure they're locked at night before I go to bed, that's not living in fear. That's being wise and taking care of my family and taking precautions. But after I've locked the door and I shut the door, I go to bed and I go to sleep. Why? Because I trust the Lord. So I take the steps necessary to reasonably to protect my family, but then I have to trust the Lord. Because I realize I'm not ultimately in control. So it doesn't mean that I leave the doors wide open and say, well, God's going to take care of us. We don't have to lock the house or close the doors. Let's just leave it all open. Who cares? No, that's irresponsible. So I practice those responsible, wise decision making processes, but we have to trust the Lord. That's so important. Take precautions, but trust the Lord. Our natural tendency is not to do that. Our natural tendency is to trust in ourselves or to try to find someone bigger or stronger or who has more resources or a bigger bank account that we can trust in and somehow to lean on them. To think that they're going to be the solution to our problems and not to trust the Lord. That's our natural tendency. Now, the people here who are responding to the king, they understood the lesson. The king says, I was in this, this place of distress. I cried out, and the Lord delivered me. And the people say, you're right. It's better to trust the Lord than it is to trust in princes or anybody else. The king is saying, hey, I trust in the Lord, and look what he did. He rescued me. It's better to trust in God than it is to trust in men, period. End of story. Now, the king then goes on in verses 10 through 12 to talk about the nature of the distress. And he uses kind of more figurative language here, but he describes very, very much how it felt and what it was like to be in that position when he was in distress. Four times, notice four times in verses 10 through 12, he says, they surrounded me. You think that? He's trying to maybe emphasize that point a little bit. Four times he says, they surrounded me, they surrounded me, they surrounded me, they surrounded me like bees. That's the last one. Mm. You ever been in a swarm of bees? You ever kicked up a hornet's nest or something like that? It's not fun. Not a place you want to be in. You have bees swarming all around you. There's nowhere you can turn that's safe. That's the idea, right? When you have a swarm of bees, there's nowhere to turn you can be safe. There's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere. To, you're, you're, everywhere you look, there is pain, <laughs> danger. Nowhere to escape. He says, that's what it was like. But but notice again, there's a dramatic change of circumstances when the Lord answered his cry for help. Because notice what he says there in verse 12. They surrounded me like bees. In the very next line, he says this. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. Now, in Israel... And we have to understand this because it's so different geographically than it is here. Israel is a desert place. And in most desert places, there's not a lot of trees to supply firewood. So the people naturally just use whatever they have on hand. And so because uh, trees are and firewood is in short supply, um, it's not uncommon at all for people in that part of the world to gather bunches of briars and thorny branches, whatever kind of things they can get, and, and, and bundle those together and use those to build a fire now the problem is when you go to burn a whole handful of branches and thorns like that and you gather that bundle together and it's all dry and you go and light it on fire um, I mean there's a there's a good the plus side is it's easy to light okay because it burns really easily the downside is it doesn't last long because it burns really quickly and then it's gone I mean it doesn't leave hardly anything behind And so the the, the psalmist is is, is kind of using what for them would be a very common picture. For us, maybe not quite so much. But the idea here is of a, a rapidly burning fire that consumes and then leaves virtually nothing behind. And he says, that's what happened, right? They surrounded me like bees. And the very next line, they were quenched like a fire of thorns. They were completely burnt up. And he says here, Why? For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. In the name of the Lord, he says. This is in the power and the authority of Yahweh himself. The psalmist says, I went to battle against them and I defeated the enemies. But not because I am such a great warrior, not because of my strength, but because I went in the name of the Lord. I had the authority of God. And in his authority, those enemies were defeated. All of them. Swarm of bees. They're gone. They're burnt up. They're gone. In fact, again, it was interesting to notice, he repeated that, 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 uh, that idea they surrounded me four times. But you notice how each one of those verses ends the same way. Right? Verse uh, 10, They surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Verse 11, Twice, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I'll destroy them. In verse 12, like a swarm of bees, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I'll destroy them. That's what he comes back to each time. He repeats that that idea. You see, as much as his enemies surrounded him and the danger was very great and very real, the presence of the Lord was, was... Equal to the task. That's what he's he's getting at here. Yes, the the enemies surrounding him were real and they were a threat. And he he repeats that because he wants us to understand how dire the circumstances were. But when the, the situation was so bad, the Lord was sufficient to meet the need to overcome the enemies, to deliver him and rescue him. The Lord was there and the Lord was enough. His enemies had done their worst. He talks about that in verse 13. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, verse 13, that the enemies had had attacked him violently. They tried to make him fall. They had had given everything they had. They had had done their worst, but he didn't fall. Why didn't he fall? Because the Lord helped him. He says, the Lord was my strength. He became my strength and my salvation. The Lord was with me. I did not fall. He says, "Yahweh has become my salvation." I love that word salvation because we know that word. That word salvation eventually, as it gets uh, becomes a na- becomes used when it's used as a name and becomes translated into the New Testament in Greek, becomes Yeshua, or it is Yeshua becomes uh, Jesus, Savior. He says, "You became my salvation. You were my Savior," and he uses that name, Yeshua. Again, I don't think it's prophetically pointing to Christ. It's just a term for salvation. But it, of course, reminds us that just as the psalmist found his salvation in the Lord, so we are saved in Christ alone. Truly, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put your trust in man, even in princes, because he is my salvation. He is your salvation if you've trusted in him. He is the one who hears my cry and he answers. And in his name, every enemy of my soul will be defeated. Once more here, the king calls for a response from the crowd. He speaks in verse 15 of the voice of rejoicing in the tents of the righteous. And then we have uh, what is really the crowd's of response in the last part of verse 15 and on to verse 16. And what do, the, what do the crowd sing back or shout back? The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The people are, are, are into it with the king. The king is saying, hey, praise the Lord. And so they do. The right hand of the Lord does great things. What I think is is noteworthy here is, again, no one is saying, what a great job the king did in winning this battle. What are they saying? The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The Lord's great might and power, His right hand is exalted. He receives the glory. Everything here is focused on Him because the deliverance is from the Lord and all the glory and all the praise then goes to the Lord. This is where we have this king and the people are engaged in true worship. Unfortunately, a lot of times what people call worship today ends up being coming about people, about elevating people. But that's not worship. That's not true worship in the biblical sense. True worship exalts God. That's what the people are doing here. The right hand of the Lord, that's what's exalted. That's what's glorified. Why? Because he delivered the people. And they're just, all they're doing is acknowledging that. They're just speaking the truth. You know, one of the things we could do if, you were, if we were inclined doing a study through Psalm 118 is use it as a case study of how to give thanks. Give thanks doesn't necessarily here involve the people saying thank you. What it is is the people saying the Lord is good. The Lord is great. His hand is exalted. It's better to trust in the Lord than trust in princes. All of those statements that they're making are all true statements that glorify and exalt God. That's what giving thanks is all about. So it's not a formula. It's, it's, express, it's just expressing the truth. It's simply saying what is true about God, about what He's done. And that's what the people are doing here. Now, we come to the close of this procession in verses 17 and 18, and the king here kind of closes it and sums up... The situation, what does he say? I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Again, his intention is to come and praise the Lord because of what he has done. But the interesting thing here is this desire to praise and give thanks to the Lord is the fruit of discipline in the life of the king. Verse 18 may come as a little bit of a surprise to you when you read through it. Here the king's talking about being in distress, crying out, the Lord saves him. And then in verse 18, the Lord has chastened me severely. I might read that and think, wait a second. Was all of this just the king being punished for doing something wrong? I mean, the bad things that happened? Was it just God bringing punishment into his life because the king really messed up and so God had to teach him a lesson? I mean that's how we think of God sometimes, right? I I do something I know I shouldn't do, and then I'm thinking, oh man, tomorrow's going to be a terrible day. It's just going to go wrong because the Lord's going to really let me have it because I didn't do what I should do, and so the Lord's really going to he's going to punish me for that one. Or when something bad happens, I begin to think, well maybe maybe you know there's something God's just getting just giving me what I deserve for what I've done, and we begin to think in those kind of terms. But that's not it. And we need to understand this word chasten here means discipline. But the word discipline, the idea of discipline is not necessarily a negative thing. We have a tendency to think of it that way, but that's not really accurate and we should be careful. The idea of discipline is not so much training, or I'm sorry, it's not so much punishment, but training. Training. In fact, the writer of Hebrews teaches that whoever the Lord loves, he chastens or disciplines, he trains. And the writer of Hebrews, in that same passage, Hebrews 12, acknowledges that chastening is unpleasant in the moment. But here's what he says. Afterwards, it yields the fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Chastening or discipline is God's training of his children. So just like a parent trains their child, there are times where that does involve correction, right? Rebuke. But that's not all. That's only one aspect of it. There's a positive training, and that is the daily uh, instruction and guidance and teaching that goes on. And that's what the Lord is doing. And so the psalmist here is saying, I have been trained, right? I have endured a time of discipline. What was it? It was a trial. There was a trial that was brought into his life, and it placed him in a crucible of divine testing and training. But it it wasn't done so that he would fail. It was done so that he would learn righteousness. What the writer of Hebrews says. And so even when he's placed in this crucible of, of trial, there are two things that he maintains that are true. The first one is this I don't die. Right? He, the testing did not destroy him. As a believer who is trusting in the Lord, as a child of God, his testing, his trial did not destroy him. We face testing, we face trial. You may be facing a time, a, uh, you may be facing a trial and test in your life right now. There might be some difficult circumstance that you're going through right now. And you feel like you're in that crucible, you're in that place of distress. The psalmist reminds us here the testing doesn't destroy, it doesn't lead to death for the child of God. And then the second thing is the Lord chastened him, but the Lord did not abandon him. That is vitally important. He says that. He has not given me over to death, verse 18. He's not abandoned me. Yes, he chastened me. Yes, he disciplined me. Yes, he put me in this time of testing and trial, and it was difficult. But he did not abandon me. He didn't give me up to be destroyed. The Lord does not abandon us when we face these trials of life. The Lord remains at our side, just like he did to the king, to strengthen and to help. What we have here in the testimony of the king is is a testimony of a man who did not resist or resent the trial. He didn't resist or resent the testing and the difficulty that came. What did he do when he was in the middle of that trial? He encouraged himself in the Lord. That's what he says. He says, I cried out to the Lord. Where did he go in the middle of the trial? To the Lord. And the Lord helped me. The Lord sustained me. The Lord strengthened me. That's his testimony. That's why he's coming to Jerusalem right now to praise the Lord. He's going to say, I was in the middle of a time of trial, but Lord, you were faithful. You stayed at my side. You never left. How do you respond to the trials and the tests that God brings into your life. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian and a child of God here this morning, then you need to understand that testing, that trial, that difficulty, God is disciplining you. Don't think when I say that, that means God is punishing you. God is disciplining you. He's training you in order to produce the fruit of righteousness in your life. No one ever said it would be pleasant. But it's part of His goodness. And it's only in those trials that you'll find His strength and His mercy really revealed in your life. It's only when you're at risk of falling that you find Him holding you up. It's only when you're tempted to trust in men that you can learn that it's better to cling to the Lord. It's better to trust in the Lord than to trust even in princes. It's only when you're in that spot that you, that you feel that temptation, that you learn to trust in the Lord. If you're a child of God right now, know that the Lord is going to chasten you. He's going to discipline you, to train you, but he will not give you over to death. He will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. And I say that even if that means you die physically in this life, he will not abandon you. Because we know the Apostle Paul testified to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Even for a Christian, even if that testing and trial brings you to physical death, he will not abandon you. He will not leave you. He will not give you up to be destroyed. This is what the king has learned firsthand and that's why he sings. That's why he shouts the praise of the Lord and he invites the people to join him in doing that. Now the procession has come to the gate. Whether this is the city gate or the temple gate, we don't know for sure. The king here is at the head of the procession and he calls out to the gate and he calls out for entrance. And notice what he says there. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. Here we have what I call the challenge at the gate. The challenge at the gate. This is the gate of the Lord. That's the response that he gets. This is God's gate. This is a gate that belongs to the Lord and the righteous may enter. Right? There's a qualification. Only the righteous may enter through this gate. So there's a challenge Kind of made, put back to the king. The king says, open up the gate. I'm coming through. And the response is, wait a second. This is the Lord's gate. Only the righteous can come through here. Only those who are trusting in the Lord, only those who are faithful to him, only those who depend on him can come through this gate. There's a, a necessary qualification here to be able to go in and go up to the presence of the Lord and worship the Lord. There's a necessary qualification. Only those who trust in the Lord and receive His salvation are declared righteous, can come in. Now, the the king then responds, not so much to the the gatekeeper here, but we see the king responding in verses 21 to 24, where he explains that, that the Lord has done this. Yes, the Lord has saved him and has brought him here. And that's why He's come. I will praise you, verse 21, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The Lord has heard him. He says, listen, I have prayed. I trust in the Lord. I'm coming in to praise the Lord. That's what I'm here for. And notice, this is where he gets to verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It's as if the crowd who is now gathered there with the king at the gate is lifting up their voice and saying, we affirm that yes, the Lord has done this. The Lord has saved. The Lord has brought us here. And we have a right to enter in because we're here to worship the Lord. And so they give testimony to the fact that God has done it. It's only by the grace of God alone that uh, the king has been delivered from his enemies. Now, you might ask the question, who is the stone there in verse 22? Of course, um, if we, as I said, if we jump to the New Testament, we immediately think, well, the stone is Christ. Jesus identified himself, here's the stone, and the New Testament writers point to that. That's true. But here in the context of this, of this procession to the, to the, uh, the, the, to the temple, the, the stone is the king. This is, is kind of a, some sort of a proverb almost. And, the, and it's being repeated here, but the king is clearly the object in view. It's the king. He was the one who was rejected by men. They're called the builders here. Maybe a reference to internal enemies. It may be that this time when he was opposed by all these armies, that there were some internal enemies who turned against him as well. Some traitors, who builders who rejected him as their king, who refused to allow him and accept him as their king and sought to destroy him. But even though he was rejected, he's become the chief cornerstone. The the chief cornerstone is, is the first stone that's laid in the foundation. And then what they do is they lay that stone in the foundation, and then every other stone fits into the foundation based on how it fits with that stone. Everything has to be square to that stone. Everything has to be level based on that stone. Everything is measured by the cornerstone. And once you've built the foundation all the way around, all of it in reference to that one cornerstone, then you can build the walls, then you can build the columns, then you can put the roof on the pinnacle, and you can construct the building. But all of that, everything in the entire construction, everything in the entire building is placed with reference to that chief cornerstone. Everything is measured off of that. If it's square, it's square because it's square to the corner. That's what it is that's the idea here. The king who was rejected, the king who, who, was, who was set aside by those who were in position of authority, the builders, that became the foundation of the entire structure. And this is the work of God, not of men, because that's what the crowd sings. They say, it is the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. And then verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. What day do they mean? What day is that verse talking about? The day the Lord has made. Is it saying, today is the day the Lord has made. We should rejoice in today. That's how we often think of that verse. If we take it out of context here, that's how it's often used. When we sing that little chorus, that, that may be what we're thinking about. Today is the day the Lord made. I should rejoice. I should be glad in the today. Well, that's probably true. That's just not really what that verse is getting at. The day the Lord has made is the day of salvation. It's the day when the Lord heard the king's cry. When he answered him and he delivered him from his enemies. When we sing that chorus, we shouldn't sing it and think of today. We should sing it and think of the day of salvation. Because that's what the psalmist is saying here. The day when I cried out to the Lord and he saved me. The day when our king cried out to him and he saved. That's the day of the Lord. That's the day we rejoice. Again, it's not hard to see how this points ahead to Christ. He was rejected by the builders, right? The spiritual leaders of Israel. And yet, in spite of their rejection, he was chosen to be the chief cornerstone. The one to whom all others must correspond. Everything in the entire building, in fact, The New Testament writers, both Paul and Peter, talk about the church as a building, as a temple, a structure that's built. And Christ is that that chief cornerstone. Everything is measured in relationship to Christ. Everything in life and death and eternity is built on one thing and one thing only. How does it relate to Jesus Christ? And so if you have not come into alignment with Jesus Christ by believing on His name, then you have no part with Him. You're cast aside. You don't get put into the building. You don't get used in the structure because you don't fit with the cornerstone. Everything is based on that one relationship. But notice how the procession then moves as we get to the end of the psalm. From the gate to the altar. The crowd, in verses 25 and 26, lifts up their voice. Save uh, save now, I pray. Hosanna! Save us, O Lord, they're saying. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, the same cry that hundreds of years later, that crowd is going to cry of Jesus as he rides on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem, fulfilling the words of the prophet Zechariah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people pronounce a blessing on their king here. That's what's happening in Psalm 118. The people are shouting a blessing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's coming into the temple. He's coming into this, the place of the altar where the sacrifice is going to be offered. And he's coming in the name of the Lord. Remember, he, would, he fought against the enemies in the name of the Lord. And here he comes into the presence of God in the temple in order to sing and give thanks to him. And we see this, this Israelite king is blessed by the people, but Jesus Christ in an even greater sense, is signified here. The ultimate and final king, the great king of kings, who's going to be the the, the one eternal king from David's line that's going to come. Not just in his first coming, but especially when he comes again in his second coming. I wish we had time to look at the New Testament because it takes this verse and it applies it both to his first and then to his second coming. When He comes to judge the earth and claim His throne. And on that day when He returns to Jerusalem to claim His throne, Jesus prophesies that that the inhabitants of Jerusalem are going to shout together, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Because they're going to believe on Him then. And they will shout this. Not just the crowds outside the city, but the people of Jerusalem themselves. That's going to happen. It first happened here with this king. It's going to happen again with Jesus Christ. We observe here in the last verses the crowd moving to the altar. They say, we have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. So we see them bringing a sacrifice in and bringing it to the altar in preparation to offer the sacrifice. And the king brings the psalm to a close there in verse 28. In verse 29, he confesses his relationship to the Lord. You are my God. I will praise you. You are my God. I will exalt you. And I love the way he says it because he doesn't say you are a God. He doesn't even say you are the God. He says you are my God. This reveals here the foundation of all praise and all thanksgiving. A personal relationship with God. Do you know him? Have you experienced his mercy, his steadfast love that is never wavering, even when you have been faithless and disobedient? Have you experienced his faithfulness, his love that is constant? Have you experienced his goodness in saving you from your sins? Your sins, like these enemies of the psalmist, surrounded you, threatened to destroy you, to overwhelm you. Have you been saved from them? Has He delivered you? Have you cried out to Him and found that He answered your prayer and He became your strength and your salvation in the midst of your trial? Then you have every reason to praise Him. Every reason to exalt Him. Every reason to give thanks today to the Lord. And conversely, you have no reason, no excuse whatsoever to complain. We who have been saved We who have experienced the great salvation and deliverance that comes from Almighty God have no room to complain about anything. Are your circumstances dire and difficult? I'm sure they are. Do you feel distressed? Pressed in on every side? Is the trial too big for you to face? It was for the psalmist too. Trust in the Lord. Trust in men, but trust in the Lord. He will be at your side even through the trial, and He is enough. He is sufficient. Rely on His strength, and most of all, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His mercy endures forever. Let's pray. Father, you are so good, and you have proven your goodness over and over again, forgiving our sin time after time after time and being gracious when we continue to struggle in our weakness and our human frailty, how often we we stubbornly go on our own way and we go astray and yet you call us back and you receive us again and you you welcome us back. You are so good. And then there's those times when we've faced trials and difficulties. We've been sick or, or we've had... Uh, uh, hardships in our life, and our family, or, or, or broken uh, relationships, or we had suffered loss of a, of a loved one, and you have been faithful. You've been there, and you've never wavered, and you've never left us, but you've been a, a constant source of strength and help. Thank you, Lord, that you have proven yourself over and over again. May we, like the psalmist and the people here in Psalm 118, lift up our voices and give thanks to you because you are good. And your mercy is everlasting, and we have experienced it. We have trusted our lives to it. We've committed our eternity to it. We believe and and have hope only in you that if you fail to save us, we will die. We will be destroyed. And our lives will be lost and wasted because we have counted on Christ and Christ alone. Thank you that you are faithful. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone this morning who's here, who's never trusted Christ, who's still wavering or still trying to kind of make their way through life depending on themselves or depending on their family or their friends or someone else to take care of them. Help them to see today the foolishness of trusting in man and that there is one in heaven who can be trusted, who is good and faithful. I pray that they would turn to you and cry out to you for mercy today that we might all join our voices to sing praise to your name because you are worth it. Your mercy truly is everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.